slightly easier again now in the Bible survey as we come on to 1 and 2 Chronicles. Still covering the same area, but uh, nevertheless slightly easier after our Kings was bad, wasn't it? You know, uh, meanwhile back in Israel and meanwhile back in Judah, that was, that was very difficult. But uh, now we come on to 1 and 2 Chronicles and it eases off a bit. Um, um, basically, when we come to do 1 and 2 Chronicles, it repeats what we've already covered. It's repetition. These two books, 1 and 2 Chronicles, cover, well, they begin with the death of Saul, and then they go through the reign of King David, and then that ends 1 Chronicles. Then 2 Chronicles covers the reign of Solomon, and then the divided kingdom after Solomon, when the kingdom split. But in Chronicles, it concentrates purely on Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, so, so, so we forget basically about the northern kingdom when we're doing one and two chronicles. And it's David and Solomon, then the divided kingdom, and then the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And two chronicles goes right through eventually to the Babylonian captivity when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Judah was carted off into captivity. So basically, when we do one and two chronicles, we're recovering the areas that we saw in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings. It's repetition. And so we've got to ask, well, why? Why do we need two more books in the Bible that are covering areas that the previous books in the Bible have just done? And the answer to that is that 1 and 2 Chronicles were written at a much later date than the books that have covered that history so far. They were written much later, and they were written for a different purpose. So although the same period of history is covered, the books that are now covering it were written much later and for different reasons entirely. Now, with Samuel and Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, they were already compiled and written while Judah was in the Babylonian captivity. So when you get to the end of the history of Judah, they get carted off into Babylonian captivity, no one left in the land. Now, while they were in the Babylonian captivity, the books, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, were already written. So the Jews in the captivity could read those books. And basically, what those books told them was it gave them the historical background to why it was they'd been carted off into captivity. They were the books that demonstrated very, very clearly that the captivity was God's ultimate judgment on them. And so therefore, the books also told them on what basis they could expect the Lord to restore them back to the land. Because as we'll eventually see, even though eventually they were all carted off, nevertheless, they came back at a later date. And the point about 1 and 2 Chronicles is that these books were written for the benefit of the Jews who returned back into the land after the Babylonian captivity. So the point is, Samuel and Kings, while the Jews were in captivity, they could read those books, see their entire history, along with the books of Moses, see their entire history as a people, and understand why it was that having got into the land, they've now been booted out of the land. 
They could trace their history and they could see the unfaithfulness of both kingdoms, the North and the South, that landed them in that situation. But because they could see from the books what got them into judgment, they could also see what was going to be required to get them out of judgment and back into the land. So the point is, Samuel and Kings were written from the viewpoint, they were written before the captivity, so once in captivity the Jews could read them and say, hey, this is our history, this is why we've got into this mess. Alright, that was the idea of them. Now then eventually, after 70 years in the captivity, the Jews went back into the land. They were given the land back, and in future talks we'll see exactly how that happened. And so now, you've got the Jews going back into the land, repopulating it. And it was for those Jews that 1 and 2 Chronicles were written. 1 and 2 Chronicles were written after the captivity had ended. And for the primary purpose of giving them that link with their past history. Because obviously there'd been a real gap. Their history in coming into the land and being in the land and then carted off into captivity, and now they're going back into the land after 70 years of being in the Babylonian captivity. And so one and two chronicles were written then to provide them with that historical link with their, their past. And so the same basic history is covered, but of course it's with a slightly different purpose in mind. So the writers of one and two chronicles are covering the same area the same history as Samuel and Kings, but it's with a different, you know, kind of different slant. And, of course, the thing is that they're doing that in order to say, right, we've got back in the land, this is our history so far, alright, the Messianic land is, uh, line is still intact, alright, now we're back in the land, as it were, you know, God's clock for us has started to tick again, we're back in God's will, this is our history, let's go on to a golden future, alright. And, um, and that's the reason, it's there to encourage them. So that it's homing in, not so much on all the rubbish that got them into captivity in the first place, but it rather homes in on all the positive aspects of their history. I mean, it's like, for instance, in the story of King David, his sin with Bathsheba isn't covered. Not because the writers are wanting to paint a false picture of King David, but all that, all that was, was, was done in Samuel and Kings. So in 1 and 2 Chronicles, it really homes in on what a marvellous reign it was under the time of King David and then Solomon. That was marvellous, what a beautiful time it was. And that's the past we've got, and we can expect that in the future if we stay faithful to the Lord. And so the areas that it covers, the reigns of David, and uh, then the reign of Solomon, and then after the divided kingdom, then it just concentrates on the history of Judah. Do you remember the ten tribes headed up north, all right, the northern kingdom, eventually they were carted off by the Assyrians, and they went into Assyrian captivity. They were never heard of again. They just vanished off the face of the earth, the ten lost tribes, gone. Now, the Jews who have gone back in the land now, after the Babylonian 70 years, they're from the south, Judah. And so, therefore, in Chronicles, it really just concentrates on the history of the South. And you only get mention of the Northern Kings, Israel, when their histories, like, overlap, alright? And so, basically, it's covering the same history, but it misses out the story of Israel, the Northern Kingdom, the Ten Lost Tribes. Every now and then it mentions that they were there, 
all right? But because it's not relevant, they were gone, all right? It doesn't really home in on them at all. And so, also, what you've therefore got in these books, as far as they're placing in the Bible, is that you've got kind of like a link, they're like a bridge between two sections in the Bible. Because the books that come after 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther, those three books, which are the three books that end the historical section of the Old Testament, they're the three books that tell us how it was that Israel got back into the land from the Babylonian 70 years of being in captivity. And so the point is, Chronicles in the Bible is the bridge between the books that give us the history of up to the captivity, all right, and 1 and 2 Chronicles are the bridge between that and the books that tell us how they got back into the land, all right. So, therefore, that's the reason, or they are the reasons why the Bible here covers the same history that Samuel and Kings has already done. The same history, but from a different viewpoint, for a different people, hundreds of years later, and for a different purpose, i.e. not telling them, this is how you got into the mess, but telling them, wow, we're back into the land, this is what we can expect in the future. What a glorious past, we've got over the hiccup of going into captivity, now we're back, so let's go for it, alright? So it's written for encouragement. And what we're going to do, we can do both books tonight, it's going to be uh, much easier than you think. We're going to literally whip through them. And basically what we're going to do is just to highlight, because it's covering history that we've already done in Samuel and Kings, what we're basically going to do is just highlight all the additional bits of history that 1 and 2 Chronicles gives us that Samuel and Kings didn't. So the point is that when we went through Samuel and Kings, we were covering various stories about various things in the lives of the kings, blah, blah, blah. Now, in 1 and 2 Chronicles, there are bits of history that aren't in Samuel and Kings, but are in 1 and 2 Chronicles. So it fills in some gaps. You know, it sort of fills in some blanks. And so obviously, we're going to take in, like, the general whole history again, but we're basically wanting to highlight the stories, the bits of history that we get in 1 and 2 Chronicles that we weren't given in Samuel and Kings, all right? So, we'll, um, we'll, we'll proceed. Now, 1, 1 Chronicles will be dead easy, all right, because it, it's basically the reign of David. And uh, first of all, we'll do chapters 1 to 9. <laughs> quick, hey? Quick. Because in chapters 1 to 9, what you basically get there is you get nine, nine chapters of genealogy. <laughs> now, I thought it would be good to go through them verse by verse, but then I thought, well, we're going to run out of time if we do that. So I'll just give you a basic overall of what chapters 1 to 9 are all about. And what it does is that it's a genealogy that traces Israel's lineage right back to Adam. So that you've got the nation and the families as they were going back into the land after the captivity. And what happens now is that you get a genealogy which traces it right back to Adam, right back to the beginning. Genesis, you know, right at the start when God created the universe. And what the genealogies do is that you've got the genealogy that specifically goes from Adam up to Noah, alright? Then, once you get to Noah, it homes in Obviously, you get his sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. So, you get up to Noah, from Adam to Noah, and then he had three sons. 
But once it gets to Noah's three sons, it doesn't trace the genealogies of all three sons. It traces just the genealogy of Shem, because the Semite people, the Jews, ultimately came from the line of Shem. So then it traces the genealogy from Shem up to Abraham. Abraham, of course, being the first Jew, the father of Israel. And then from Abraham through to the actual 12 tribes of Israel, Judah being established in this genealogy as the Messianic line. Now this is the thing to get hold of. It was the tribe of Judah from whom Messiah was going to come. And of course, it's fundamentally the ancestors of the tribe of Judah who are now going back into the land from the Babylonian captivity because it was the southern kingdom, Judah, that was carted off and came back. The northern kingdom, the other tribes, when they'd been carted off by the Assyrians, they were never heard of again. They're gone. But the tribe of Judah, the messianic line, the south, is continuing. And of course that, it's the messianic kings that 1 and 2 Chronicles homes in on. The kings of the south, not the kings of the north, but the kings of the south. And of course the first one was, of course, King David. So in chapter 10, having done chapters 1 to 9 with all the genealogies, in chapter 10 we have the death of King Saul. Now of course, 1 Chronicles, when it picks up its history, it starts with the death of King Saul not interested in his life in the slightest. Why? Because he was rejected. David was the messianic line, so therefore Chronicles starts with the death of Saul and um, David having the kingdom handed over to him. All right. So in chapter 10 you get the death of Saul and then David stepping in actually uh, there in the sidelines waiting to become king. In chapter 11 you actually have David becoming king. So chapter 11 it, Chapter 11 covers the actual enthronement of David and how he conquered Jerusalem because, of course, David made Jerusalem the capital of the south. Um, and also in chapter 11 you get various bits and pieces of information about his mighty men, all the soldiers who, who fought at, at his side. Now, in chapter 12 um, you get uh, more details of David's mighty men and, and, and a long list of all the warriors who, who joined him. And there are names of these warriors and details about them that weren't in 1 and 2 Samuel. So additional information there about the warriors who, who fought with David. In chapter 13, um, you have the story of the, the ark commencing um, its journey to Jerusalem. You'll remember that the ark under Saul had been carted off under the Philistines, you know, being a real sign that God was no longer with them and so the ark had been carted off, but in the reign of David it was recovered again. Remember the Philistines sent it back because all their gods kept falling on their face, didn't they? All the idols, and they kept breaking out in sores and people dying. So having captured the ark, the Philistines were very keen to give it back to Israel because all the, all the trouble it was causing them. And, um, and you remember that there was the, the roundabout way that the ark got back to Jerusalem because there was the incident when uh, one of the oxen stumbled and the ark was going to fall off and, and Uzzah put his hand out to, to balance the ark. And of course he wasn't one of the priests, he wasn't one of the people who was under the law allowed to touch the ark and he was struck dead. And of course the problem was that in the law of Moses the ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests and it was being done on the back of an oxen on a cart. So because it was being done in a way other than God's word said, 
all sorts of problems came about because of that. And uh, you'll remember that David was so affected by Uzzah's death that he decided that rather than take the ark back to Jerusalem at that point, he'd leave it with a bloke called Obed-Edom for three months, which he did. And it took David three months to gather the courage to actually bring the ark into Jerusalem. Um, in chapter 14, you, you then get various details about David's household and, uh, and his family as well. And you, you, you get details of a, a battle that he had with the Philistines. Um, chapters 15 and 16 is the actual arrival of the Ark in Jerusalem. Um, you have the, the, the story here, as we saw um, in Samuel, the um, David dancing before the Ark as it came in and, and his wife Michal despising him in, in her heart. Remember, we, we saw that it's very easy to you know, say, well, naughty old Michal. And indeed, she was naughty, but what a background. She'd just been used as a political pawn, hadn't she? You know, being a, you know, sort of daughter of a king and stuff like that. She'd been a political pawn and she was bitter. And the bitterness, it doesn't mean it was right in her heart, but nevertheless, it's good to understand that she did have a bit of a bad time. And, um, and here you get David's Psalm of Thanksgiving, the one that he wrote um, when the ark came into Jerusalem. And uh, you get information here that you don't get elsewhere about the, uh, the two priests who ran the tabernacle, Asaph and Zadok. And they were the first of the priests under David to be actually running the tabernacle um, in Jerusalem. Then it moves on to chapter 17. And um, we have the bit here where the prophet Nathan uh, brings David the word of the Lord that uh, his son would build the temple in Jerusalem for the Lord. And it's at this point that Nathan proclaims to David the Davidic covenant, all right, that, that David would have a kingdom that would last forever. And of course, because he was the ancestor of the Messiah, that King David was the messianic line. And so you get there the promise that uh, David would, as it were, be over a kingdom full time because his ancestor, Jesus, is going to be a king of an eternal kingdom. Um, in verses 18 to 20, you get various battles and various victories that he won. Uh, plus details of his officials. None of this is worth going into in any great detail. Of ways, well, it's, not, it's not worth it. It's not time to. But see how quickly we're we're doing this. Um, then in chapter twenty-one, you get the um, the story of David's wrongdoing in numbering his fighting men. Do you remember he took the census? It was sheer pride in his heart. It was completely wrong that he did it. You know, numbering his army. And um, and what's interesting is that uh, you get that, that same story recounted in 2 Samuel 24, and here it's repeated. But what's interesting is that in 2 Samuel 24, in the Samuel version of the story, it says there that it was God who incited David to take the census, i.e. the idea being there that God was testing him. You know, God kind of, you know, this pride was in David's heart, so God drew it out. So obviously as God draws our sin out, he can deal with it. And in the Samuel version of the story, it says that it was God who incited him to do it. But here, in 1 Chronicles, in chapter 21, it says it was Satan who incited him to do it, which is exactly the opposite. And of course some people say, well look, here's one of the contradictions. A lot of the so-called contradictions in the Bible are actually to do with the, the Samuel and Kings versus the 1 and 2 Chronicles accounts, you see. Um, and people say, well, look, you know, here's a contradiction, because was it God or was it the devil? It can't be both, can it? And of course, it's explainable so easily on the basis that we know full well that very often when God does test people, he uses the devil. 
So the devil thinks that he's doing his worst against God's people, and indeed he is. But at the same time, he's actually, God is using him to be the means of sanctifying God's people. We'll see that very powerfully when we come on to the book of Job. I mean, it was Satan who was letting Job have it, but behind it was God refining and testing Job. So it's not a contradiction at all. It's just a, you know, sort of like a picture there of Satan doing God's dirty work, because God is sovereign, the Lord is absolutely in control. And, uh, you know, so many of God's purposes are actually carried out by the devil. And uh, Satan, at the end of the day, ultimately is being divinely manipulated all the time. And, of course, he hates it. Then in chapters 22 to 29, uh, you get additional information, quite detailed information, about all the preparations that King David had done in advance for the eventual construction of the temple. Now... David knew that it was his son, Solomon, who was going to build the temple. But actually, we learn from here in Chronicles that David did a tremendous amount of groundwork. And he had all the plans and everything, and he got everything ready, so that when the time came for Solomon to move, David had actually done all the groundwork. And uh, so, you know, you get all the details about that. Uh, you get details of the Levites who were going to man the temple and their division into various groups and they were divided into groups according to the genealogies of Levi's three sons because you remember to be a priest you had to be a Levite all right and uh, you know so also you had to be of the son of Aaron blah 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 so it's all done by genealogies and that um, and then it actually gives details about how the the priests were grouped together you had the sons of Aaron and then you had the singers and you had gatekeepers and you had treasury officials and they were all done by genealogy and so all the all the details are here in these chapters and uh, then you get the details of uh, how David organized the army and uh, into various divisions and you know who was in what division blah 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 and um, you know and you get the names of the various officers who were over the various tribes blah 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 and then you get the names of David's overseers who were like his cabinet ministers, I suppose they, they, they'd be the closest to his sort of cabinet. And, um, and then after that, uh, you have the actual death of David. Uh, Solomon is anointed as king in David's place, and then you get the death of King David. And, uh, you know, that's, that's it. That's, that's bang, one chronicle's done. So that's quick. Don't get excited, because two chronicles is going to take longer, but nevertheless, it didn't take as long as you thought, did it? So, that's, that's one chronicles out of the way. Basically, one chronicles the reign of David. Bang, it's easy to remember, isn't it? So, when we start doing the tests, and, you know, at the end of the month. <laughs> right, okay, two chronicles. Now, two chronicles remember. The reign of Solomon, and then all the kings after Solomon, after the division of the, ta uh, after the, division of the kingdom. So, let's start with chapter one. And uh, in chapter 1, Solomon obviously is now king, he's been anointed king. We have in chapter 1 his prayer for wisdom. You remember that, you know, God said, ask for whatever you like. And Solomon prayed for wisdom. And God was thrilled. And he said, look, because you've prayed for wisdom and not fame and riches and power, I'm going to give you all that as well. Can't be bad, can it? And, uh, and, and you get an, an, an account of his great wealth. And of course, here's the point. The possibilities. The blessing under Solomon was the greatest that Israel had ever seen. And of course, in Chronicles, emphasising that, because they're going back into the lands, they're repopulating the land, this is the possibility. This is what they can experience if only they remain in fellowship with God and avoid all the mistakes and sins and rebellions that led to them being carted off into the captivity as covered in Samuel and Kings, blah, blah, blah. Right. 
Chapter 2, you have details about the preparations for building of the temple. Because, of course, the building of the temple was it. The, built, the temple was, was the sign of God's presence amongst them. You know, so again, this is Israel's golden age. Chapters 3 and 4, you get the actual building of the temple and uh, details of all its furnishings. Uh, chapters 5 to 7, once the temple is completed, the ark is brought into the temple. And uh, remember the ark being the symbol of God's presence with them. The temple is completed, so the ark is now taken into the temple. And once that's done, you get the prayer that Solomon prayed, dedicating the temple to the Lord. And uh, then what happens, the Shekinah glory, remember throughout the wanderings in the wilderness, God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, what the Jews call the Shekinah glory, God's immediate presence amongst them. And what happens now is that the Shekinah glory, this fire and cloud, obviously it's the presence of the Holy Spirit, descends on the temple. And literally the Lord moves in. And when we saw that in um, Kings, 1 Kings chapter 9 covers that, we um, you know, just uh, reminded ourselves of the fact that, that in 2 Chronicles, it's here that we get the information that when this happened, there were 120 priests blowing the trumpets. Now, we weren't told that in 1 Kings chapter 9, we were just told about the Shekinah glory moving in, but it's here in 2 Chronicles that we get that, just that extra detail, about 120 priests there blowing the trumpets, announcing the coming of the Lord to his people. And of course, on the day of Pentecost, there are 120 believers who were gathered. When the church was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on them, there are 120 of them. Now that's not a coincidence. Can you see? Because the temple is ultimately a picture of us. You know, God lived in the tabernacle, the tent, then he lived in the temple. And then of course Jesus said that he was the temple. See, in him the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. And now, Jesus lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us, we're the temple. So you are the temple, individually, because God lives in you, and we are the temple, corporately, because we're the church. And so that's all the symbolism there, God. You know, the temple is where God lives in all his fullness. And uh, so, so there, in chapters 5 to 7, you have a very much more detailed account of uh, the Shekinah glory entering into the completed temple. In chapters 8 and 9, you get details of various other activities that he engaged in. He did a lot of building, and you get details of stuff that he did that we weren't told in Kings. Um, we have here the visit of the Queen of Sheba. We covered that in Kings. We had that there. And uh, then you, you get more details of his great splendor and how God blessed him. And uh, then his death and his succession by his son Rehoboam. So chapters 8 to 9 end. Chapter 9 ends. Solomon now dies, and he is succeeded by his son Rehoboam. Now, in chapters 10 to 11, we obviously, because it's relevant to the South, we have here the actual story now of the divided kingdom. Um, how Jeroboam led the ten tribes in the North. How they seceded, I, they declared independence. They said, we're not part of you anymore, we're going to be our own nation up in the North. And uh, you'll remember that this was, you know, this was sort of like, you know, partly because Rehoboam was obviously going to be such a bad king. You'll remember that the actual reason that the kingdom divided was because Solomon fell into idolatry. He fell away. And, uh, you know, but that's not covered here because that's not the brief of 1 and 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Chronicles is homing in on the good bits, not the bad bits. They knew the bad bits. They had all that in 1 and 2 Kings, didn't they? But the point is that here it very briefly covers 
um, the fact that the kingdom divided and up in the north Israel was established with Jeroboam as their first king um, and Rehoboam the son of Solomon continues the messianic dynasty down in the south in Judah. So you get that account of the division of the kingdoms which I'm not going to go into now because of course you know it virtually off by heart by now don't you? Um, then you get an additional account of various fortifications that Rehoboam set up, cities that he built and fortified, information that we didn't get in Kings. Um, and a little bit of information about him, again that wasn't in Kings but it's here, that uh, in actual fact that the people were more faithful to the Lord than he was. I mean he wasn't very good at all. You know, do you remember when the people said, look, could we have a less harsh regime than Solomon had? Do you remember that, you know, Rehoboam, he asked his father's advisors, what do I do? And they said, well, you know, give in to the people, public relations, ease off a bit, no problem. And he didn't like that because he was a young man. So then he, you know, he, he asked his buddies who he'd grown up with, what do you think? And they said, well, you know, what you've got to do is tell them that, you know, my, my father scores you with whips, but I'm going to score you with scorpions. And so that's what he told them. And so basically that was when Jeroboam and the ten tribes says, right, we'll blow you. We're off. See, it cost him the kingdom. That was the sort of idiot he was. But he was young. And, uh, but we're told here that the people were more faithful to the Lord than he was. What a terrible indictment of a leader of God's people. I mean, wouldn't it be absolutely all, you know, say, you know, in churches where the elders were the least holy people out of the church. That would be dreadful, wasn't it? But sadly, this was all too often Israel and Judah's lot. You know, the kings were absolutely awful. And, um, and also you get additional details about his family and uh, that we don't get anywhere else. In chapter 12, we're told that whereas back in chapter 11, the people were actually more faithful to the Lord than Rehoboam was. That didn't last very long. And in chapter 12, we're told that the, uh, eventually the people abandoned God's law just like Rehoboam had done. And that's what happens if leadership isn't holy. If the people are holier than the leadership, what happens with the people will normally end up down at the level of the leadership. This is why godly leadership produces maturity, ungodly leadership produces absolute chaos. And so what happens here is that the people abandon God's law. They say, well, our king, he's not following the law, so why should we? Blow it. And, um, and then what happens is that a prophet called Shemaiah uh, comes on the scene and uh, prophesies that, um, that, that Rehoboam was going to fall and uh, you know, going to be dealt with through an attack uh, by the king of Egypt, who at that particular point was a guy called Shishak. So he was going to get really dealt with badly as a judgment from God by Pharaoh Shishak. But when he heard that, Rehoboam, the only little bit of repenting he ever did in his life, he did now. That put the wind up him a bit. And so he turned to the Lord, he did a little bit of repentance. It wasn't much, nothing right home about, but it was a little bit. And so, because God is merciful, because God is, he cannot resist repentance, it's his mercy. It clicks in. And so what he does is because of this tiny little bit of repentance, he reduces the judgment from complete destruction. Because what was going to happen was that Pharaoh Shishak was going to come in and just wreck, just destroy the whole kingdom. And that put the wind up right above him. It's like, Lord, you know, help us, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. And so what the Lord did, right, a little bit of repentance, so a little bit of grace, fit, you know, fit this in here. And he said, basically, Shishak will ransack you, but not destroy you. And so Judah got a ransacking not total destruction because of this little bit of repentance. So powerful thing, repentance, isn't it? And, um, and you actually get the story of that ransacking. And uh, anyway, eventually Rehoboam dies and he's succeeded by his son Abijah. And uh, in chapter 13, 
where, you know, where now Abijah's reign, and uh, you get an account of the war between him and Jeroboam. Jeroboam, first king of Israel, still going strong, up in the north, and Abijah wars with him. And only You get that story in 1 Kings 15, but it's more detailed here, this battle between Abijah and Jeroboam. And uh, so their mention of the north, Israel. But because the south, Judah, which it's interested in, has a battle with it. So, you know, Israel gets a mensch there because Judah's fighting with it. Anyway, then chapter 14 to 16, and Abijah has turned his toes up, as kings do, eventually. And uh, he's succeeded by his son, Asa. And uh, you, you get a much more detailed account here of Asa's reign than the one in 1 Kings 15. We saw Asa in 1 Kings 15, fairly brief. We get a few more details here. And, um, and what we discover with old, old Asa is that he followed the Lord and uh, he, he was helped. He had a, like, a, a mate, uh, a partner, uh, the prophet Azariah. And Azariah really helped him. And, um, and Asa was faithful. He, he, even, he even deposed his grandmother because she was an occultist, she was into idolatry. And, you know, in, you know, in the ancient world, I mean, what, you know, like today, the Queen's mum, she has a position, doesn't she, and, you know, stuff like that. Well, what he did is that he relieved her of her royal, you know, privileges. He deposed her because she was an occultist. And he led kind of a revival in Judah. By now, Judah is not really following the Lord, but under Asa, revival, and the nation started to come back to the Lord, and it was good. But later on, things started to change. The rot set in. Asa was one of these kings. He started off well, and he ended up not very good at all. And he, he got involved in um, an alliance with the king of Aram, which, which later became Syria, which he shouldn't really have done, all right? That was, that was naughty. And uh, a prophet called Hanani ticked him off. You know, the Lord sent this prophet to rebuke him. And uh, what he did is he got the ump with Hanani. And threw him in jail. And from that point, backslid and began to oppress the people. So while he was following the Lord, he was a good king and the people prospered. Now he's fallen away, he's got the hump, he's been rebuked, he's too proud to accept rebuke, he gets angry, he's thrown the prophet Hananiah into jail, he's backslidden and now he starts to oppress the people. And if eventually he dies and uh, he's succeeded by his son Jehoshaphat. Now in chapter 17 to 20, and we get a, a much expanded account of the reign of Jehoshaphat. We saw him in 1 and 2 Kings, didn't we? Because he kept having alliances with Ahab and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, but we weren't really... In 1 and 2 Kings, we, we only came up against Jehoshaphat insofar as he kept having alliances with Israel. But here, we, we get the story of Jehoshaphat. Just Jehoshaphat, like Jehoshaphat the movie. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. So we get the details about him. And what the Bible says about him is that his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. This was one good guy. He was a good king. And he actually, he sent Bible teachers and priests all over the kingdom to instruct them in the Lord. So, you know, sort of like Bible teachers and preachers, all financed by the king, going out all over the land to make sure the people were instructed in the ways of the Lord and following him. And... We saw last time um, when we were doing one and two kings that he, he got into alliance with Ahab, didn't he, up in the northern kingdom in Israel. Bad, bad news that um, that resulted in Ahab's death. Do you remember? Because they wanted to, you know, to go and get, uh, where was it? 
some place back from Aram to retrieve this city. And uh, you know, do you remember that there was the episode with Micaiah? Now, do you remember that Joshua said to Ahab, well, look, have you got any prophets around? And so Ahab brought all these crony prophets in, and they said, oh, yes, go ahead. This can be, you know, great, great victory. And Joshua said, well, have you got any others? And he said, well, there's Micaiah. Joshua said, well, where's he? Well, in the dungeons. <laughs> Why is that? Well, he never prophesies good concerning me. See? So, Micaiah, you know, you remember the story about Micaiah. And Micaiah says, oh, yes, go up, you'll have victory. And Ahab sort of, like, you know, gives him a smack and says, look, tell the truth, I've told you not to lie. And then Micaiah prophesies Ahab's doom, you know, and uh, all the time Ahab knew that Micaiah was the genuine prophet of the Lord, but just didn't like what he kept saying. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, we saw Jehoshaphat with his alliance with Ahab, and remember Ahab was dealt with by Elijah, wasn't he? And, um, and we get here an additional account that, um, that Jehoshaphat actually got rebuked by the Lord for that alliance with Ahab, and a prophet called Jehu, gave him a right ticking off. He should never have got involved with Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat was totally out of fellowship with the Lord. Sorry, Ahab was totally out of fellowship with the Lord and eventually died, didn't he? So Jehoshaphat should never have got involved with him at all. And um, also we get here the famous story that we all know so well when Moab and Ammon launched an invasion. And do you remember that um, he pronounced the fast across the land and they, they sought the Lord and the prophet Jehaziel came through with a prophecy, look, you know, the battle is yours, isn't yours, it's God's. And do you remember that they went out to the battle and Jehoshaphat sent the, the singers praising God out before the army? And uh, by the time they got there, the Moabites and the Ammonites had destroyed each other. And that, you know, really famous story about, um, you know, sort of like Jehoshaphat's victory over um, Ammon and uh, Moab. And uh, then also, you um, get another story, and we wouldn't have known this particularly from uh, Kings, that uh, Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab's son. So Ahab died, and he was um, succeeded by his son Ahaziah, and uh, Ahaziah was as bad as his father Ahab. Jehoshaphat, you know, had an alliance with him as well. And another prophet, one called Eliezer, was raised up and rebuked him for it. And as a result of this alliance with um, Ahaziah, that, that they'd done a come up with a fleet of trading ships. This was all part of their, you know, sort of alliance. And uh, what, what God did, I mean, although that was really expensive, I mean, they, 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 in this alliance, they came up with a joint merchant navy and God destroyed all the ships. You know, so Jehoshaphat made this alliance, pumped millions into this joint economic venture of a fleet of ships. And then Eliezer turns up, wrong, shouldn't have done it, and God destroys the fleet. You know, well... He should have known. He was rebuked. He didn't learn his lesson, old Jehoshaphat. And, um, you know, so, so, so that's, uh, that's chapter 17, 20. Chapter 21, Jehoshaphat dies, and uh, he's succeeded by his son, Jehoram. Now, Jehoram's first act was to murder his brothers. So it's a sudden dive now. Obviously, you remember all this because we saw all these kings in, uh, you know, in, in, in one and two kings, didn't we? But uh, he murders his brothers and he was very much into idolatry. And uh, we're interestingly told here that the reason two of the nations at this point who were like vassals to Israel were Edom and Libna. And all, all the surrounding nations at, at the time of you know, David and Solomon, all the nations bowed down to Israel. You know, Israel was like, you know, the world power, and all the other nations were vassals to it. And uh, at this time, Edom and Libna revolt 
successfully and declare independence from Israel. And we're told how now that um, this was because it was a specific judgment from the Lord. And it's interesting this, because the more out of fellowship Israel got, the more its empire shrunk. And yet the more in fellowship it was, the more its empire spread. Interesting that, wasn't it? It says something about the British Empire, it's gone. That's, that's, that's interesting, that is. Anyway, I don't want to home in on that. And here we, we learn that, 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 that Jehoram um, got a letter from Elijah. Elijah was up in the, you know, his ministry was based in Israel. But uh, Elijah, having dealt with Ahab and all the others, he actually writes a letter to, um, to Jehoram, and it's a letter of prophetic condemnation. And, um, and Elijah writes to him and tells him that he's going to die of a lingering bowel disease. This, 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 this was not a red-letter day for Jehoram. And, uh, and eventually that is what happened. I mean, it took quite a long time, but he, he caught this lingering bowel disease. And, um, and then after that, it was in Jehoram's reign that Judah was actually plundered by the Philistines and the Arabs. So, so, so now Judah is, is, is in quite bad trouble now, you know, incursions from all sides. And eventually Jehoram, and of course this is the reason, because he was so godless, he was a murderer, he was an idolater, um, and eventually Jehoram passed away, and the Bible quaintly says, to no one's regret. Uh, and you know, that's the epitaph of the man, when he died, no one gave him monkeys. So that's, that's, that's not a very good epitaph to have. Anyway, ch chapter 22, 23, he's um, succeeded by his son, Ahaziah. Bear in mind, all these kings are in the Messianic line. You remember when we, you know, like the history of Israel, we saw that, I mean, there were so many family lines representing, because they kept assassinating each other, didn't they? Whereas in the south, with one exception that we're going to see shortly, that there was, you know, it kept the family line going. The Messianic line, you know, remains strong. So he's succeeded by his son Ahaziah, who was as bad as his father. He, he, he was evil, uh, into idolatry and terrible stuff. And, um, he got into alliance with uh, the king up north in Israel at that point, who was uh, called Joram. And um, Joram was the one who succeeded Ahaziah when he died. He was his brother and, and also a, a son of Ahab. So these, this stupid alliance that Jehoshaphat got into with Ahab, even though Jehoshaphat was a good king, he followed the Lord, but he had a weakness in that area. And he got into alliance with Ahab. And for two or three generations, Ahab's sons ended up in alliance with Jehoshaphat's son. You see, the, the, the poison spread. And so this went on for two or three generations. And uh, so, so here, Ahaziah ends up in um, a, alliance with, with, with Joram, the king of Israel as, as well. And um, eventually, Ahaziah died. Um, we have that story in 2 Kings 9. You remember that... Um, up in the north, things got so bad that God raised up a guy called Jehu to murder all of Ahab's family. Well, not murder, but, you know, to execute them. You know, capital punishment. He was appointed by the Lord to do it. He'd actually been appointed by Elisha. And uh, that Jehu killed the, all of Ahab's families and began a moderate, you know, a moderately believing reign. So Jehu took over the kingdom. And, um, and Ahaziah who was in alliance with Joram, ended up being killed as a result of that alliance when Jehu killed Joram. So Ahaziah paid dearly for that alliance because he, he ended up in alliance with a dynasty in Israel whom God had said, right, the sin unto death, you're all going to be destroyed. And because he was 
in alliance with that family, he was destroyed as well. So Ahaziah ends up being killed in the process of Jehu cleansing Ahab's dynasty up in the north in Israel. So when Ahaziah did die, it was here that we get the only blip, the only diversion from the messianic line, because his mother was called Athaliah. Now, she, she, she gives the clue as to where Ahaziah got his characteristics from, because she killed the entire royal household, she killed all her sons, and uh, because she wanted to be queen. So she killed all her family and she reigned for six years. So now the messianic line is broken. Um, however, Ahaziah had one son called Joash who escaped. He was only a little boy, only sort of like, you know, three or four years old like. And, uh, and what happened was that the high priest, who was called Jehoiada, and his wife, who was Jehoram's daughter, um, what the, they had rescued Joash and, and hidden him away somewhere safe. And what they did is they groomed him to become the king, and he became the king when he was seven years old. And, um, but what they did eventually is they got the army on their side and the army backed them and Athaliah was overthrown as the queen and she was put to death. And therefore Joash, even though he was only a little boy, was made king as he should have been in the first place. So with Queen Athaliah you get a blip on the messianic line, but because Joash was saved and is now Athaliah's dead and he becomes king, now the messianic line is restored. So no problem in regards to that. So in chapter 24, we actually have the reign of Joash. He was seven when he became king. Um, and in chapter 24, we have the details about him. He started off well. Um, he followed the Lord. He restored the temple. Because obviously over the generations, the temple had fallen into disrepair because no one cared. And uh, so he restored the temple and he got proper temple worship going again according to the law of Moses. So that was good. Um, but information that we get here that we didn't get in Kings was um, that, that when Jehoiada died, uh, Jehoiada, the high priest who rescued him, blah, 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 groomed him to be king. When Jehoiada died, because Jehoiada was like his mentor, when Jehoiada died, he fell away and he fell into idolatry. So the, Jehoiada was very important to him. And when he lost his, his own righteous, godly leadership, he slipped. He fell away and he went into idolatry. And um, various prophets warned him. You know, God raised up various people prophesy against him, but he ignored them all. And eventually Jehoiada's own son, um, who was a prophet, a guy called Zechariah, not the Zechariah, the Old Testament book, not him, but Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, who was a prophet, he eventually warned him, you know, went to him and said, Joash, you know, you're under judgment, you've got to stop this in the name of the Lord. And what happened was he was stoned to death, the people stoned him to death, and Joash did nothing to prevent it. See? So, it, bad, bad scene here. And judgment came in the form of Aram invading. So now they get an Aramaic invasion. Aram, Syria, invades Judah and Jerusalem, and they have a good old plunder. And, and the temple that had been restored is now destroyed again. And Joash himself was left badly wounded. And then, sort of like recovered from his wounds, and then he was assassinated by the people. Because the people then thought, wait a minute, he... um." You know, he let Zechariah be murdered. And so they avenged the murder of Zechariah by assassinating Joash. So he came to a sticky end. But however, he was succeeded by his son, Amaziah. So the, you know, messianic line is still quite safe. And then in chapter 25, 
Amaziah, he follows the Lord to start with. Got off to a good start. Interesting little story here that he, he hired 100,000 soldiers from Israel. He wanted to increase his army. So he thought, right, okay, where, where can I get my soldiers from? So he hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel. And, um, you know, but of course this was virtually the same as an alliance. And so a prophet who isn't named comes to him and, uh, and tells him, no, hang on a sec, wait a minute, wait a minute, they're Jews, but the North is out of fellowship. You can't do it, it's the same as making an alliance, send them back. So he sent them back. So, you know, I mean, he listened to the prophets, he, he kind of, um, you know, was, was good, following the Lord. Um, he went to war against Edom and subdued Edom. Edom, not Edom, Edom's a cheese, Edom. And um, so, so, so now, you see, godly leadership, back in, Edom is back under Israel's control. You see, the empire's starting to grow again. See that, you know, that principle. And, um, but, we get more details that we didn't get in Kings about him, and it's the fact that he, when he got older, he got into idolatry, he fell away. This was such a common theme amongst the kings in Israel. It's or in Judah, in the south, they started off following the Lord and they kept falling away. And, uh, and he refused to listen to the prophets. God raised up prophets to go to him, to rebuke him, to try and bring him back to the Lord, but he wouldn't have it, wouldn't have it at all. And, uh, and so what happened is that then he, he, he got really obstinate and he decided that he wanted to have a war with Israel in the north. You see, earlier in his life, He'd sent back the prophets, uh, so he sent back the soldiers from the north because the prophet told him to. Now he thinks, right, I'll go to war. And this was completely out of God's will. And the king in Israel at the time was Jehoash. So here he ends up um, fighting Jehoash and he gets beaten. Jehoash wins the fight. Israel wins. And, um, and he was taken prisoner up to the north into Israel. So he was the king in the south, in Judah. They lose the fight, and he's taken prisoner. And some of his own people track him. They find him where he's being held prisoner by Jehoash up in Israel, and they assassinate him. <laughs> so, you know, that's, 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 that's what they, they thought of him. And so he was then succeeded by his son, Azariah. Now, Azariah, it's worth noting that he's the one who's also called Uzziah. And that is important, because, for instance, in um, Isaiah chapter 6, you know, when... Isaiah has the vision, he, the Lord high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, that's this Uzziah, Azariah. So Azariah was called Uzziah, and he was, um, he was Amaziah's son, all right? So, chapter 26, Azariah stroke Uzziah, followed the Lord to begin with. Um, but he ended up being struck by leprosy, and we're told here why. And it was because... As he got older, because he followed the Lord, he got really blessed. But what happened, because blessing can be a two-edged sword. Blessing can make you more faithful to the Lord. Or, do you remember, one of the warnings that Moses gave the people on the eve of them going into the Promised Land. And he said, just be careful that when you get in there, that you don't end up so blessed that you forget the Lord who gave it to you. See, And what happens here with Azariah, or Isaiah? is that he's so blessed and powerful that he grew proud. And what he did is he usurped the authority of the priesthood. And he decided that he would make a sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice that under the law of Moses only a priest could make. And he decided to do it. Now do you remember another king had done that many, many years previously? 
King Saul. And of that crime, God had said, rebellion is as the sin of divination. And so this is a very, very serious thing that this king is doing. He's usurping the authority of the priesthood. And as he makes the sacrifice, God strikes him with leprosy. So he ended his days with, as a leper, and of course from the point that he became a leper, he died years later, but he had to give up his kingship there and then, because obviously he couldn't you know, be with anyone, he had to be isolated on his own. So at that point, he was succeeded by his son, who was called Jotam. Now in chapter 27, of course you remember Jotam, don't you? Because we saw him when we were doing kings, didn't we? Jotam, he was a goodie. And the Bible says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, he defeated the Ammonites. So now Ammon, who had successfully seceded, they'd been a vassal nation, they escaped, now they're brought back under Israel's control because Jotam is following the Lord. And uh, so that's good. That's all we're told about him. And he was succeeded by his son Ahaz. Now, chapter 28, we get the reign of Ahaz. And the only thing really that can be said about Ahaz was that he really was the pits. Ahaz was into human sacrifice. And this human sacrifice was, it was unbelievable. It was literally babies. It was, you know, sacrificed by fire. It's hard to imagine how low. I mean, when Israel were brought, when Israel was coming into the Promised Land, the great warning that they've been given is that they must not become like the Canaanites. Because the evil of the Canaanites had reached such a pitch that God had judged them and said, I'm going to dispossess them from the land, Israel will have it instead. And all the warnings were, don't become like the Canaanites. And I mean, sort of like the Canaanites were into human sacrifice, amongst loads of other things. And here is a king of Judah, the messianic line, doing human sacrifice. You see, you know, you can understand why eventually God ended up taking them into captivity. And, and he was into idolatry in a, a major way. The actual idolatry here was to the god called Molech. And the way this worked was that this idol and, and it, it was large, very big. And in its arm, there was this great bronze basin. And what they did is the bronze basin was filled with coals uh, and was fire, kept, kept alight the whole time. And people brought their babies. They brought their little baby sons. And they put them in the brazier in Molech's arms. So they put the babies on the coals. It's unbelievable. And the place where they did this was the Valley of Gehinnom. Or the Valley of Hinnom, the Sons of Hinnom. That, that was the name of the place. And eventually, because of the great evil that was done there, when the Jews eventually came back into the land, you know, from the captivity, because such great evil had been done in this Valley of Gehinnom, what they did is they turned it into... Jerusalem's rubbish dump. It was outside of Jerusalem and they turned it into the rubbish dump so it became the refuse tip and it's, it's you know sort of like ev ev everything was chucked out there and it was kept burning the whole time and it was this place the valley of Gehinnom 
where human sacrifice by fire was done to Molech, and then later on it became this refuse tip that was burning the whole time to keep putrefaction down. It was that place, Gehinnom, from which the name Gehenna was given to the Lake of Fire. And the Lake of Fire was named Gehenna after the symbolism of this valley of Gehinnom, that there had been human sacrifice there by fire, and that it then became the rubbish tip where everything was burning the whole time. And the imagery is perfect. It was the imagery for Lake of Fire. And that is why Jesus refers to Lake of Fire as being Gehenna. Jesus was quite happy to use that name for it. Gehenna, the Valley of Gehinnom, the Lake of Fire. That was the background here, sacrifice to Molech. And uh, so Ahaz is as bad as you can get. And uh, we're told here that he was handed over to Pekar, who was the king of Israel. And um, many of his men were taken to Samaria as prisoners. Samaria was the capital of the north in the same way that Jerusalem was the capital of the south. And so, as judgment against him, God brought Pekar, king of Israel, against him, and uh, Pekar won, and took loads and loads of Ahaz's men back to Samaria as prisoners. But uh, then you, you get a fascinating little story here of uh, God raising up a prophet called Oded. And Oded went up to Israel in the north, and he had a word with Pekar. And he basically said, Pekar, you've got to send those prisoners back. God has given Israel, you know, the south, God has given Judah into your hand because they're out of fellowship. But you've taken you know, all these men as prisoners. And what Oded said to him is that you're, even though you've been used as God's judgment against Judah, you're as out of fellowship as Judah is. Give the men back. And so Pekar sends the men back in acknowledgement that he and the north were as out of fellowship as Ahaz and the south were at the time. And so all the prisoners are sent back. And, uh, you know, so at this point, the north and the south are both as bad as each other. No redeeming features at all. But then, Ahaz dies and is succeeded by his son called Hezekiah. Now, in chapter 29 to 31, um, quite a few chapters now are given over to the story of Hezekiah. And he was tremendously important um, because he, he was actually likened to King David. He was such a good king. He was so faithful to the Lord that the Lord himself likened him to King David. And he purified the temple, completely restored the temple. He got the... Levites back on their feet, you know, the Levitical priesthood had broken down completely. He restored that. So now the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, the whole of Israel's religious life revolving around the temple is now back in place. And he celebrated the Passover for the first time in years. This Passover had been completely forgotten, hadn't been done for years, and he instituted the Passover again. And uh, also you get details of uh, the fact that he arranged giving to pay for all the worship. All this stuff he was doing had to be paid for. And so he got the tithes and the offerings going, and he got God's people giving so that their, their lives could be restored to how they should be. Then in chapter 32, we get the siege of Jerusalem. But what happens here is that Sennacherib, the Assyrian, now remember the north, Israel, 
now falls to Assyria. And the northern kingdom is beaten by Assyria and are carried off into the Assyrian captivity, gone for good. Assyria is at this point the world power, it's the most powerful nation, it's ruling the then known world, having taken over from Egypt, <coughs> and they've carted the north Israel off. And now the Assyrians, having dealt with the north, now make a play for the south. And so Jerusalem is sieged by the Assyrian army at the time when a bloke called Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And it's at this point that uh, Isaiah comes on the scene. Isaiah worked very closely with Hezekiah. And it was at this point that um, Isaiah is raised up by God to say to Hezekiah, don't worry, you're going to be delivered. You're going to be set free from this. And I mean, you know, Jerusalem is in a mess. You know, I mean, the, the Assyrian army sieged and it was absolutely dreadful. I mean, the you know, Israelites didn't have a chance. And, um, and you'll remember that we saw that, um, that the way that God was going to do it, Isaiah, you know, sort of told the king that the Assyrian army are going to be called away, all right, to deal with something else, and then God will deal with them. And what happened was that there was an Egyptian incursion back home, and so the Assyrian army had to go back to mop that up and then come back and finish off um, Judah. And uh, what happened was that Sennacherib sent a letter, you know, I'll be back, you know, don't you worry, we're going, but I'll be back. And you remember that Hezekiah, he took the letter and he spread it out to the Lord in the temple. And, um, and of course, what happened was that uh, as the Assyrian army marched off, I think it was the, 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 the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of them. And then a short while later, Sennacherib himself was murdered by his two sons. And so, you know, this remarkable deliverance from the Assyrian army, because Hezekiah and Jerusalem were in fellowship. Assyria got Israel because Israel was out of fellowship. But when it made the play for Judah, Judah was in fellowship, and so God protected them. And uh, then you get a summing up of Hezekiah's last years. And uh, so he was, he was a good king. And uh, then he was succeeded by his son Manasseh. And as we move into chapter 33, we have the details of Manasseh. And uh, we're back to the real bits, because you'll remember that Manasseh was into human sacrifice. So we're, you know, very much back to, to Ahaz here. And um, so he, he was as bad as any king of north or south. He was as bad as any Canaanite king. Absolutely dreadful. But it's here that we um, get the story, uh, or the information, that in actual fact he ended up repenting. So he was the one king who started off really bad and ended up good, because what happened was that God judged him again through Assyria. Assyria came back on the scene and um, invaded Judah and carted him. You know, I mean, they, they beat them. And uh, Assyria, the Assyrians, were carting King Manasseh off as a prisoner. So, I mean, this really was the end of him. And it led him to repentance. While he was being carted off by the Assyrians, I now... There's a little Assyrian captivity going on in Judah now, and their king, Manasseh, is being carted off in captivity. And as a result of that, he repents, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers him and restores him back. It doesn't say how it happens, but all of a sudden, Manasseh goes from being in Assyrian captivity to being back in Jerusalem and ruling again. So we don't know how God did it, but God heard his prayer. And um, so he's restored back as king, and he was a good king for the rest of his life. So, so there's a king who was the pits, 
who ended up really good. So yeah, worked the other way. And then he died, and he was succeeded by his son Amon, and uh, Ammon, probably Amon. No, Amon, Amon Andrews. No, Ammon. It's got to be Ammon, hasn't it? And um, now he was he he was just like his dad had been before he repented. So Ammon, absolutely back to being the pits again. And um, he, he was actually assassinated in the palace by his own officials. Even his sidekicks couldn't stand him, and so they, 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 they killed him. But the people who killed him were then killed by the people, because there was a plot afoot. But the people wanted his son to be king. And so what happened was that although um, Ammon's officials murdered him, the people murdered them and ensured that Ammon's son succeeded him, which he did. Messianic line intact. And uh, his son, who succeeded him, was called Josiah. And in chapter 34, um, again, Josiah, another brilliant king, absolutely superb. Bible says that he walked in the ways of David, his father. So, a goodie. And um, he made loads and loads of reforms in the land. He got closest to how things were under Solomon before Solomon fell away. It was Josiah who got the closest of any king to restoring them back to that golden age of real commitment to the Lord. And he tore all the idols down. He completely cleansed Judah of all idolatry. The temple was repaired again. You see, the temple keeps getting beaten up, doesn't it? You know, the enemies invade and destroy the temple. So he rebuilds the temple. And, uh, I mean, loads and loads of the buildings in Jerusalem are derelict, and he virtually rebuilds Jerusalem as well. He really restores it for how it should have been. And you'll remember we saw in Kings, it was in, 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 in his reign, that while the builders were restoring the temple, they found the book of the law. This is interesting. They found the book of the law. They had lost the scriptures. They had lost the Bible. They didn't even know there was a Bible. By the time King Josiah was reigning, they didn't have the books of Moses anymore. They were without the Bible. And they found it again. And so they read through, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They realized what a find it was. And immediately what happened was that he, he had Bible teachers sent out all over the land teaching the people. So he studied it, he had other people studying the law to make sure that everything was restored again as it should be, which it was. And then in, in chapter 35 we have a, a very expanded account, much larger than uh, the account in, in Kings of the, the Passover. You'll remember Hezekiah, uh, who was his great-grandfather, when he restored the temple and everything, he reinstituted the Passover. Well, they only had one, it lapsed again. Now, Josiah does it again, so there's another massive Passover. And, um, however, he, he came to a bit of a sticky end. Because um, he didn't exactly fall away. He, he stayed faithful to the law, but he got a bit disobedient. And what happened was that... Um, he went completely against the word of the Lord in that he took Pharaoh Necho on for a fight. Now, what was happening at the moment was that Egypt was, was again, really grown in power. And, um, and at this point, the, the leader of Egypt was a king called Necho, so Pharaoh Necho. And, um, and Pharaoh Necho wasn't wanting war with Israel, sorry, with Judah at all. 
wasn't interested. But for some reason, Josiah wanted to war against him. Now, Pharaoh Necho, all right, of Egypt, was about to enter a military campaign against the Babylonian Empire, which was in process of growing and growing and growing. Egypt, seeing its power being threatened, was about to enter onto a campaign against the Babylonians. Now, at that point, Josiah, for some reason, wanted to enter into a campaign against Egypt. Egypt didn't want to fight Judah. They wanted to fight Babylon. And the Lord spoke to Josiah and said, don't do it, but he did it anyway. No, you know, no reason given for this lamentable disobedience, but nevertheless, that's what Josiah did. So he went against Egypt. And what happened was that, um, is that he, he lost, he died in this fight. And as a result, Judah ended up a vassal nation to Egypt. So it was an utter disaster. Right at the end of this bloke's life, one act of disobedience, and the nation, which was back at the peak of its glory, now, bang, suddenly ends up a vassal nation to Pharaoh Necho. Crazy. And, um, and it's here as well that we're told that Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was a friend of his, Jeremiah wrote laments for him. You know, lamentations and all that sort of thing. They were friends. And, uh, but anyway, he died, and uh, he was succeeded by his son, Jehoahaz. Now, in chapter 36, we, we, we get the, the story of Jehoahaz, and we're now very quickly approaching the Babylonian captivity. We're actually now, you know, like a snow, like a wheel going down a hill. It's getting faster and faster and faster. And we really are now on the beginning of a roller coaster ride to the end of Judah completely. So Jehoahaz did evil. He, he was an evil king, all right? He was completely out of fellowship. And um, he only lasted for three months. He reigned for three months. And uh, he got on the wrong side of Pharaoh Necho. Remember, Judah is now a vassal nation to Egypt. He got on the wrong side of Necho. And uh, so Necho carted him off to Egypt in chains. And what he did is he made his brother the king instead, bloke called Eliakim. So what's happened is that Jehoahaz is the king, all right? He gets on the wrong side of Pharaoh Necho. Necho carts him off into captivity to Egypt, replaces him as king with his brother Eliakim. But what they tended to do at times like this is they changed your name, and that was a sign of authority. And so he changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim, all right? So, therefore, we now have King Jehoiakim still in the Messianic line because, um, of course, he was uh, Jehoahaz's brother. All right. Now then, during the reign of Jehoiakim, Pharaoh Necho and the Egyptian Empire fell to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So what's happened is the Babylonian Empire is now becoming the world power, a world empire. And during the reign of Jehoiakim, Pharaoh Necho and Egypt fell to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, Judah's vassal status passed from Pharaoh Necho of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, because Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered Necho of Egypt. It's rather like, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of like if you beat a nation, if you took them over, you took over everything that they had. 
you know, there are sort of games that work on this principle. Like if you capture them, like Monopoly, all right? I mean, you know, if, there's in, in, if we're playing Monopoly, and uh, say you land on Mayfair, and I've got a hotel on Mayfair, all right? And you can't afford to pay me. Well, I don't just knock you out. I get everything that you had. Can you see what I mean? So in the same way, during the reign of Jehoiakim, Judah's vassal status passed from Egypt to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And when that happened, Jehoiakim betrayed Nebuchadnezzar and um, fought against him. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that, and you didn't do that. You didn't fight against, you know, the Babylonian Empire when it was controlling you. And so what happened, because Jehoiakim rebelled against the Babylonian Empire, it was then that Nebuchadnezzar marched in and plundered the temple of its treasure, all right? So what happened was that Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sent his army in. They marched into Judah, occupied Judah and Jerusalem, and plundered the temple, all right? And it was at that point that the first wave of captives were taken into captivity. It wasn't the full captivity, but the first wave of the captivity happened. And it was then, for instance, that Daniel went into captivity. And we'll be seeing more about that when we get onto his book, all right? So what happens is Jehoiakim is carted off in captivity, all right? He is succeeded by his son Jehoiakim, all right? Difficult that. Jehoiakim is succeeded by his son Jehoiakim, okay? Again, he did evil, he didn't follow the Lord. He lasted for three months and ten days, all right? That's all he lasted, and Nebuchadnezzar carted him off into captivity as well, and replaced him as king with his uncle, a bloke called Mataniah. So can you see, the messianic line is still quite intact, because Jehoiakim was in the messianic line, all right? His son took over, but his son has been replaced by his uncle, who was Jehoiakim's brother. So the Messianic line, obviously, is still quite intact. So therefore, the Babylonians have replaced him as king with his uncle, Mataniah, and they step in and do the old name-changing bit, and they change his name to Zedekiah. So Nebuchadnezzar, all right, has removed Jehoiakim as king and replaced him with his uncle, Mataniah, but in the process changing his name to Zedekiah. We saw all this when we did kings. And uh, Zedekiah did evil, he didn't follow the Lord. He was prophesied against by Jeremiah. All through this time, Jeremiah was raised up by God to say to the people, submit to the Babylonians. This captivity that is coming upon us is God's judgment. There's no avoiding it. It is God's will. Submit to the Babylonian captivity. Now the point was, that the nation thought Jeremiah was a traitor. Because the kings kept saying, no, we're going to fight against this Babylonian captivity. But the point was, Jeremiah knew they couldn't beat the Babylonians, because the Babylonians were God's instrument of judgment. Therefore, captivity couldn't be prevented. It was inevitable that, Israel, that Judah was going to be carted off. But the problem was, the more that the kings fought against the Babylonians, the greater was the destruction and death. And Jeremiah's ministry was to say, don't fight them, make it easier on yourself. But he was dreadfully persecuted because everyone said that he was a traitor, you know, a Babylonian spy or something like that. And, uh, you know, so 
Jeremiah prophesies against Zedekiah, but Zedekiah makes, uh, you know, takes no notice at all. And when we do the book of, um, of Jeremiah, we'll be seeing more about this when we actually do his book. And, uh, and eventually Zedekiah led a straight rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, at which point Nebuchadnezzar put his boots on and really piled in. And as a result of that, Jerusalem fell. It was completely and utterly destroyed. The temple was completely and utterly destroyed. And then the full-scale Babylonian captivity duly followed. And virtually everyone was taken into captivity and carted off. And uh, Zedekiah was, of course, the last king of Judah. And the book, Two Chronicles, ends um, with the information that the captivity lasted for 70 years. Now, Jeremiah prophesied that. That was how, when Daniel got to Babylon, that was how Daniel knew that the, um, you know, that the captivity was going to last for 70 years, because it was prophesied by Jeremiah, and it's very possible that Daniel and Jeremiah had known each other. And um, so we're, we're told there that the captivity would, would last for 70 years. And uh, we're, we're just given a hint as to what happened next. Now, the real details we're going to be seeing when, when we do Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah and all that. Um, but we just get, you know, just, just a very general rundown. And, and of course, what happened was that whilst Israel was in the Babylonian captivity for those 70 years, in fact, at the end of the 70 years, Babylon, as a world power, fell to Medo-Persia, which was the next world power. And when we come on to Daniel, we're going to see all the world powers and how they all fit, including the world power that is yet to come. All right. Um, so what happened is, whilst Israel was in the captivity, the Babylonian Empire, at the end of 70 years, fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And the guy who was in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, became a Christian became a believer. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar got saved as well. He became a believer. We'll see that when we do Daniel. But Cyrus the Persian was a believer. And it was him who accommodated and organised Israel's return back into the land. But that's kind of a hint of coming attractions. Um, and, uh, you know, so just so that you've got the date firmly in your mind, we're, we're back at the Babylonian captivity of Judah, and we're around 600 BC. But remember, 1 and 2 Chronicles, written for the Jews repopulating the land, having returned from the Babylonian captivity. The reason being to encourage them to show them the possibilities that were there now that they were back in the land, if they remained faithful to the Lord. Now. What we're going to do next time, all right, we're not going to go straight on to the next three books that give us the story of the return uh, from the captivity. What we're going to do next time, so that we've really got this bit of Israel's history firmly in our mind, i.e. their history in the Promised Land, what we're going to do next time is we're going to whip through the kings of Israel and Judah. So what we're going to do you know, it's not actually going through a book of the Bible, but what we're going to do is we're just going to remind ourselves of all the kings. We're going to go through all the kings of Israel, you know, who they were, blah, 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 and then through all the kings of Judah as well. And having done that, that whole, this whole bit of history will have firmly stuck in our minds. And then, after that, we'll move on and we'll see Israel in the captivity returning back into the land 
um, having been released from um, the Babylonians by the Medes and the Persians. So we'll continue with that next time.